I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. With me, as always, is that cyborg construct, Jeff Goad. Do you like my shimmering silver hair? And your bronze skin, indeed. And this week, we are honored to have another incredible cyborg, Kira McGren. Hello, Kira. Hello. I'm so happy to be here with my cyborgness. <laughs> uh, Kira is the uh, curator of More Seats at the Table, a uh, bi-weekly, is that correct, newsletter on mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, highlighting games that are by people of marginalized populations, specifically uh, uh, marginalized genders, but other areas as well, uh, with uh, many great contributors, such as uh, Misha B., who we've had on the show before. And... Um, also, the designer of sorry, hold on, designer of uh, a cozy den and something is wrong here, and contributor to numerous other games that you should all look up. Hello, Kira. Hello. <laughs> I would just like to say something is wrong here looks incredibly cool, and I really want to experience this. Right. It is very cool. It's my love letter to David Lynch movies, um, especially Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive, which are my favorites. Mulholland Drive is a lesbian movie everyone needs to see. (laughs) (laughs) And Twin Peaks The Return is my my favorite piece of media, period. Oh, yeah. So good. Episode 8. Best, Incredible. best episode of TV ever. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not quite as much of a Lynchian, but that, that episode blew me away. And I remember just watching their series originally when it came out, you know, in every, every what, Thursday night, whatever night it was in college. Just, you know. Yep. And I've yeah. been to Twin Peaks conventions. Um, actually, the very first Twin Peaks convention I went to was in 1995. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I, was, I was 15 years old, and it was at the Seattle Art Museum. And um, it had the the man from another world was there, which was cool, even though he's like a weird Holocaust denying strange little person in real life. <laughs> um, but it also had it was the only one that Jack Nance was at. Oh, right. that's incredible. amazing. Right. Yeah. I, it took me a while to come around to David Lynch. I was like, um, I went to art school and in art school, I hated him because he was too, he was like a sensational artist just right. doing weird art things, you know? <laughs> and and then like 10 years later, I was like, I, I love David Lynch. He's amazing. <laughs> he speaks to me in, in my soul. And like, that's why I wrote that game. So. <laughs> there you go. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all find the Lynch we need eventually, right? So. <laughs> okay, so um, we always like to ask our uh, guests uh, secret origin stories. So how did you get into gaming? Um, I guess I officially got into gaming. Like when I was a kid, my brother and I had the, um, the D&D board game and we tried to play, but we couldn't figure it out. Like We were very young, like maybe like, like eight or something. Um, and then I used to go to my to hobby stores with my dad. Um, and so in one of the hobby stores, I found Vampire the Masquerade. Yeah. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and I bought that book. And then I tried to play, I ran a game like for, I don't know, my 11th or 12th birthday for all of my girlfriends, but they 
we all did terribly at it. Like we just didn't understand. I didn't understand games forever. And then uh, I got, you know, I was a goth teenager and I started going to goth clubs and um, that's how I got into vampire LARPing, which I guess is my true origin story for Mm. gaming. (laughs) (laughs) I was vampire LARPing in 1993. I was a member of the Camarilla and I still have, I still have my certificate of the embrace. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> were, were you there for the official unofficial like the Camarilla and the I forget what the other one was the called Sabbath. and Sabbath. No, there was oh. like a like the Camarilla was the official one and then there was oh, the unofficial one. It. And oh. they were like warring over copyright issues in like the early two <laughs> thousands. No. I was yeah. only doing this like ninety three, ninety four. Okay. <laughs> Do you guys I think remember I that? I lurked for a long time. It was maybe like 10 years, actually. Like a long <laughs> time. Because, like, in gaming, for me, like, so much, I think the big reason I got into it is because I could costume as well. Mm-hmm. And I loved costuming, and, and Vampire, like, was basically about goth communities and, like, mm-hmm. being an awkward teenager and, like, yeah. metal level. Yeah. And it was like a, an excuse for me to explore like my gender and sexuality and gender presentation and play different roles. And like vampire is super queer for the time, you know? Yeah, right, so right. that's kind of, I think that's what drew me in. Like I was just drawn in by like the, the vampires and the, the culture around me, right? <laughs> and like, the, and the costuming. And now I'm into it. And then I got more into tabletop after that, I think. Mm-hmm. And what was, that, what was that transition to tabletop that uh, brought, brought you back around to tabletop since you had sort of bumped off of it initially? Oh, yeah. Well, it was mostly White Wolf games. Mm-hmm. But we also played, like, in high school and college, I, like, played, like, Cyberpunk mm-hmm. and Shadowrun and Call of Cthulhu and, like, all that. All the games, I guess, that were kind of around at the time. Um those are, I think, kind of the big ones that we played. But I played so many games. And then I just kind of, like, drifted. Like, I went to game conventions. Because, like, game conventions were where you could play the LARPs. And you could right. play, like, a weekend-long LARP at, the, at Origins or Gen right. Con. And then I got, like, drawn into, like, whatever the tabletop games were there and experimented with new things. And then, I guess, like, I don't know when this was exactly. Maybe, like, a little before 2010. But, like, the indie games it's kind of seen exploded like right. through the forge and stuff. And I started mm-hmm. playing with some people at origins, like Evan Turner and Nathan Paletta and Jason Morisar and origins is like my local con. And so like, that's kind of how I got drawn into like the artsy storytelling in B side mm-hmm. of tabletop games. So it's kind right. of like a weird, like I just, yeah, I just, I just played so many games over right. so many years. Right. <laughs> and, and- uh, what was the sort of uh, transition into designing at that point? Was that much later or was it always a, a thought in your mind that you wanted to design and create for? Gosh, I think that anyone who is like running a game for their group is a game designer to sure. a certain extent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I wanted to run a Farscape game for my group. And so I hacked um, Fate Core or whatever it was at the time. I think it was maybe still Fudge or something mm-hmm. to run like a Farscape like game. And so I had to redesign the game. I had to right. like write different characters. I had to write different moves or whatever for the game so that we could be in the Farscape universe. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of when I got into the mentality of design. And as an artist, like I went to art school. So I have like this design mentality and approach and and artistic, like, I don't know. I think games are art. And so so it was kind of like I got more interested into the design elements after I started doing that more and more. And 
that's kind of how I drifted into design. I got into story games, like the story games forums. I made a lot of friends. I talked about design all the time on there and I just mm-hmm. kind of started doing it more. <laughs> so in terms of, uh, you know, the stuff you were drawing on, you talked about, you know, goth and, and, and that, were you also reading a lot of uh, fantasy and science fiction when you were younger? Is that something that was attractive to you or is it more sort of horror, you know, Anne Rice or whatever that was the equivalent of at the time was? Um, all of the above. Okay. Uh, I've always liked horror and sci-fi a little more than fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, I could not really... Yeah, I mean, like, I read Tolkien. I read um, what the Dragon Pern series. Uh, Anne McCaffrey, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the Sword the of Shannara. I read For the Shannara ones. Right, right, yeah, right. and, like, like, so I kind of read, like, some fantasy stuff, but I think, um, I think it just wasn't... And I read some sword and sorcery. I read Conan and I read um, Fawford and the Great Mauser. Sure. Okay. Right. Like the classics. But I didn't really get into that as much as sci fi. Like, I love sci fi and horror a lot more than I love fantasy, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, Anne Rice was, was fundamental. Right. <laughs> so, were you aware of the concept of Appendix N before we asked you to become on this podcast? Or is that something, you know, had, had you heard that term or is that even anything that was on your radar? I had not heard of that term, but yeah. I did know that there were appendixes in D&D. And yeah. I have actually not played very much D&D mm-hmm. um, as a gamer, which is, I mean, it's something that happens, but I feel like is less, is more rare. Right. Well, we're certainly seeing um, in our guests and a lot of people we talk about that there's certainly a lot of people who came in, you know, after 1990 or so would might be very many different ways of entry into the role-playing universe. As opposed yeah. to anyone before 1990 who was more likely to be D&D or potentially Traveler or something like that. So, um, Oh, yeah, Traveler. Yeah, right. We had, I think, um, there was, it was Misha B who said it was Earth Dawn was her first game, right? So, right. Oh, yeah. I played right. Earth Dawn. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I played Traveler, too. Yeah. So. Well, Kira, I had I did not know how much we had in common. For one thing, we're, we're, <laughs> we're neighbors-ish. I'm in Cleveland. Nice. <laughs> um, also, here is oh, it's it's you, it's too dark. You can't quite see, but you can still at least kind of see. Like that's me at 15. My, Amazing. My, yeah, <laughs> you get the vibe. <laughs> I love it. That is amazing. I can't easily bring up my goth pictures. Can I? Oh, there. Oh, there, there. If I make it darker, you can see it there better. You Your face. Is <laughs> that is so good. <laughs> yeah, that's me in '95. I had dyed black hair from the age of 12 to 22. Amazing. I remember in college, someone, one of my friends, called my hair an oil slick. Like it looked like the colors <laughs> of an oil slick, so like purple and black and blue or something. <laughs> I just that was very characteristic of me for five years. Yeah, and my at first my mom wouldn't let me dye my hair black, but then I got cast in West Side Story, and because this is 1992, um, I was able to play a shark by agreeing to dye my hair black. Um, <laughs> d- different different era of cultural sensitivity, but like, yeah, this this is in in early 90s. It's like the 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 jets were the blondes and the sharks were the brunettes. Is kind of how it worked. <laughs> I was also in West Side Story, which might have been the first time I ever like cross-dressed because I was in a gang and they literally wrapped my chest for that. Wow. wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's a weird memory I haven't thought about for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of interesting overlap. Wow. All yeah. right, so the immortal of World's End. Yes, which edition of the book are, are we working with? That's that's where we're going to next. So, what are you working with, Kira? I don't know. Um, does it say? 
Well, I forgot. I just sent you a text file, didn't I? No, I downloaded it myself. Oh, you downloaded it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then it's probably the current Thunderchild ebook, I guess. So it's, yeah, it's on, it's on Kindle. I read it. Mm -hmm. So, okay, cool. Yeah. Hoy and I are both working with this 1976 um, paperback. It's the Da Yellow Spine. That's what mine looks like. Right. Yeah, it's, it's still- got that Michael Whalen cover where mm-hmm. Ganelon is looking all golden haired and yeah. He does not look like a machine. He looks like Conan. <laughs> right. Yes, yes. And he really wants you to see how big and buff that one bicep is. Like I feel like he was like doing some push-ups right before right, that right. portrait was painted. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a good bicep. I'm not right. gonna lie. Right. He does have a little bit of that. Uh, I don't know that little bit emo there, Jeff. Though a <laughs> little bit, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> but yeah, so that's our version. And then we'll take a quick look at our Hygaxian word of the day. <laughs> lugubrious. Lugubrious. Mm. And I actually have kind of a funny story about the word lugubrious. Around this same time that I was like vampire larping and stuff. Me and my friend Josh, who I still play D&D with today, um, we ran across the word lugubrious and didn't know what it meant. And we decided we were going to use the word for as much as we could for a week and then look up what it meant. (laughs) Uh, So in 94 and 95, there was a period where I used it all the time without knowing what it meant intentionally. But I then looked it up and lugubrious means looking or sounding sad and dismal. Which we then, we, we, we changed the word and then we decided that lugubriate was to make something goth. Uh, <laughs> That's really cute. <laughs> but lugubrious is found in two, point, uh, two, two parts of this book, both to describe um, Chongliar, the stone man. Hmm. On, page 30, on page 67, it says... Looking even more lugubrious than usual, Chong Rilar went over to stir up the fire while Vetch, with a snort of impatience, hopped out of his chair. And then again on page 71, it says, Chong Rilar took up a watch station atop the battlements of the first tier and at intervals throughout the morning reported the successful ascent of yet more and more of the warriors, his dull voice melancholy and lugubrious. <laughs> So that is our word of the week, lugubrious. There you go. It is very Gygaxian. All right. And now we are in the library. Um, Kira, what did you think of The Immortal of World's End? Um, wow. Let me just say wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a subtle piece. Um, understated. I, I was not ready for this book. Like... I came in with, like, I guess my Fawford and Grey Mauser Conan uh, goggles on, like, prepared to be that level of sword and sorcery, I guess. And this was, like, a new level for me. <laughs> I know, this was more, like, heavy metal sword and sorcery. <laughs> like, I was, I didn't know that that's what these were. And it gave me a new perspective on D&D. <laughs> in general, I feel like pre-Dungeons and Dragons we as a culture were way more willing to let our sci-fi and fantasy kind of blend together more where I feel like in a post Dungeons and Dragons world, science fiction and fantasy are two very distinct genres. Now, how do you feel about this kind of older style where they kind of blended the two more? Oh yeah. I I mean, this book uh, with all of its problems um, was was super cool. Um, I really like, it's so weird. It's very like, um, it reminds me of Adventure Time, 
where I feel like it's in like this aerobarus with Adventure Time. Like it's like this inspired D&D inspired Adventure Time. And then you yeah. come back to like this. It's like a full circle of genre. And it's mm-hmm. very weird. Like, um, like I don't see as much Adventure Time style sci-fi fantasy in D&D. Um, right. But I think that some people extrapolate it to be that. And this is like obviously in its inspirational form mm-hmm. yeah. but um i don't know sci-fi fantasy I'm, I'm usually not a huge fan like i don't really like Shadowrun. like i'd prefer just like cyberpunk like minus the fantasy mm-hmm. um but i think i think there there are some cool things that do it well i think this did it really well I, 700 million years in the future and in, right. in earth's future it's just bizarre it's like <laughs> it was this person tripping the whole time they wrote this like it was the 70s so. Also, yeah. <laughs> I did the math on that. In 700 million years in the future, the <laughs> dinosaurs were only around for 135 million years. So this is five times that in the future. Right. Yeah. And and, and 10 times longer than the dinosaurs have been dead farther in the future from us. Yes. Right? Yes. So. Yeah. Uh, it, it assumes a lot about the survivability of the human race. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in that case, I guess it's kind of optimistic, right? But uh, <laughs> it is. <laughs> so you mentioned that it has a bunch of problems. Let's go ahead and chat about some of those problems first. So, Kira, when when you say it has a bunch of problems, like what is what what are, what are what are the things you're thinking of? Oh gosh, um, I mean, it's very sexist. It's very racist. Um, it's uh, homophobic. Has maybe child porn in it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of like. A lot of Ganelon spending time watching young Curdy, right. this like young sumptuous boy boy who like is yeah. like dancing naked through yeah. the pink bubbles, right? Little wine cloth, but you know. Yeah, it was very uncomfortable. There was like a young uh, dancing gypsy girl. I guess I should say the G word. I don't know how to use that. How to right. re- represent that slur? Yeah. Um, you know, and and like um, it's definitely like of its time. Like, I have seen things recently that are on a par with this. So it's not necessarily like this is old news. Like, it's just right. got a lot of problems. But, um, yeah, yeah those, those were the big ones, I think. Now, um, did you find that there were problems with this as a literary piece as well? I... Like, what did you think of the prose style of Lynn Carter? What, how, is, how is Lynn Carter as a writer? I actually really liked the prose style. Um, yeah. I think it's a little repetitive as far as the creativity. Like, like pretty much all they did was eat. Like there were like like twenty meals in this right. book, and then they would like plan. They would have like these intermediary scenes, and then they would have like giant structures landing on people and killing them. And that was like <laughs> like the structure of the story was right. kind of silly in that sense. But right. I really liked his writing style right. actually. It reminded me I recently read a book, a sword and sorcery book that was about a gay um black character, a gay main black character, a guy. Um and it has the same kind of like poetic um flow to it that is nice and it's it's like poetic but simple it's like very short and like mm-hmm. straightforward right i mean definitely lynn carter's not doing any of these very convoluted sentences that we sometimes see like i don't know like fletcher pratt or something like that some of the other authors we've read and yes i'm really um it was a little strange his his fixation with um and i think jeff you had mentioned this even the the all the female characters, I mean, he's definitely a boob man, Lynn Carter, but he's... Oh, God. <laughs> you know, 
the gyno sphinx. I like highlighted like her gigantic boobling like memory gland. Like, (laughs) and like, oh yeah. Um, she rolled her eyes comically and swung her shoulder so that her huge, splendid mammaries swung to and fro <laughs> like great, fat, pinkish bells. Then what are these for? She asked. And I was like, I was reading this and I was like, is this porn? Like, is... <laughs> and like, that's fine if it's porn, like, but was it supposed to be or was he just like writing this like into a normal book? Like, I couldn't tell. <laughs> And that's what's so interesting about the style of this book, too, right. though, is like it's sometimes it's very whimsical and innocent. Like here we have Griff, who's like this tiger man, and his way of swearing is he says, my claws and whiskers. Like, <laughs> and like that could be straight out of a kid's show. And right. then we have these incredibly violent and bloody battle scenes and right. these very strange semi-pornographic, semi-child pornographic <laughs> scenes. Um, it's a very interesting mix of tones right well i think you alluded to like heavy metal it was like that whole weird mishmash of everything in the 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 70s and there was some of those like elf lord i mean that was more like the 80s and stuff like that some of those comics were definitely kind of um borderline (laughs) you could see like the personal obsessions of the authors were coming through and as jeff you were saying earlier uh, you want to know now? I want to know more about Lynn Carter. Lynn Carter has a very sparse biography on his Wikipedia page. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I really just want to know the context of like him writing this and like the pulp novel. Like, were you to grab this and was it supposed to be soft porn like heavy metal is? You know, right. like was it at the top of the bookshelf? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't think. I mean, this was Daw, right? So this is pretty mainstream. I mean, yeah. as far as science fiction, but I mean, I guess this. Is it personal obsession? Is it fan service? What what is this? What are these scenes? Right, like you know yeah. the, the big boobs. That's definitely fan service. Although it could also be a personal obsession. But the 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 live young limbs of uh, Curdy and stuff like that. You know? Yeah, I don't know because the, the I feel like the big boobs were probably the fan service because you see that all the time in this kind of stuff. Right. The stuff you don't see is how he was constantly describing the sexy women as boyish. Yep. Oh, and yeah. kept talking about like their boyish builds. Yeah. And that is not something that. I am accustomed to seeing in pulp in pulp writing. Right. So that's also very intriguing. Like right. why is why is he so in- interested in describing these sexy ladies as boyish? He was kinky. This is yeah. my theory reading this cuz like the um like when he describes the gynosphinx like Griff's like I'm sure that were we to try and mate she would crush me beneath her giant <laughs> and like and then there's like the like every time he describes an Amazonian woman yeah. she's like obviously the dominate the dominatrix in the situation and the yeah. the man next to her is like the the subtle and and like gentle scholar who is like obviously a stand-in for him. <laughs> right. It was I'm, just cracking me up. I mean, he was just like an open book. Right, right. He's like, I, you've been a, you've been a naughty sage, haven't right. you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And, and from what I've read for like the oral histories of like the convention scene of the late sixties and early seventies, uh, it was just like a wide open, you know, this is like, okay, we're, we're in the sort of interzone. Anything goes, you know? <laughs> right. Oh yeah. I'm sure there was a ton of crossover. I mean, just like there is today. And, and I mean, nothing wrong with it aside from the problematic elements, right? Uh, but if you, if you want to write about kinky <laughs> barbarian <laughs> dominatrixes, you know, that's, that's great. Go for it. Right. Right. 
Totally. Just, right. But also, like, it's one of those things where it's like, you lead with that. Maybe don't just, like, throw that in the middle of some, like, random story, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it reminds me a lot of, like, the cartoon sword and sorcery from that time, like, the Belladonna of Sadness and, um, what is it, like, Silver and Gold or Silver... Right. Silver and I don't know. That they just had like a lot of sexy elements to right. them. Yeah, and that was just the, like part of the genre. The Ralph Bakshi stuff in the seventies was also very, you know, out there and stuff like that too. Yeah. 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 Where suddenly there would be like Nazi stormtroopers yeah. in the middle of wizards. Yeah. Yeah, and it's exactly. like, wait, what? <laughs> Where did this come from? Um, one thing that was interesting to me is um how often like kind of his authorial humor would come through. And sometimes I felt like it was really successful. Like on page 143, there's this sentence that I highlighted that said, the second got it in the face, which speedily became a red ruin, which was no great loss to the world of beauty. However, it may have distressed the man who had worn it. I thought that was kind of a great little sentence. But then also, I feel like sometimes his writing was like pretty like awkward and a little painful at times. Like here's this one really bad metaphor that he used. The mass of Zimchaks melted away from her like a plate full of ice cream from a blowtorch. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> what? what? Where is that metaphor coming from? Like, A, it's just a weird metaphor to begin with, but also B, like, ice cream and blowtorches are so of our world. Like, it kind of took me out of the world of Gondwain and into, like, 1976, like, Cincinnati or something. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I actually really liked some of those juxtapositions because it reminded me that this was based in a world 700 million years in the future. It was very, like, um, William Gibson, like, Gibsonian, where he's describing, um, goes into great detail of, like, all of the, like, the sink faucet design or whatever of, like, the 1980s that's in this like future world of the 2100s right right that's the the interesting thing i guess about science fiction is it never really is about the far future right it's really only about our time you know um i don't know so much about fantasy fantasy is maybe about an imagined ideal past in most cases um and not in every case but in, in many cases um but this again there's weird extrusions like you say jeff of like present day um uh, metaphor um and then uh again one page after that and we talked about this in sort of uh, we have a book club for some of our patreons before there where we can actually and there's these weird extrusions of again there's the ultra violence which is mostly cartoonish until you start thinking about it and then you say oh that's really horrible like when all the barbarians get sucked up into the fans of the city and get spewed back out as this pink chum you know <laughs> right i like i skipped some of that honestly <laughs> right <laughs> But do then, you mind if Hoy reads a specific passage that was really brutal, or would you rather not? Okay. No, that's okay. Thank right. you for asking. Right. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. did. I did X card. But right. I, you right. did. So based on that, <laughs> I wanted to just check with you before, because <laughs> right, right. I I feel like I know where Hoy's going with this. So, because right. um, <laughs> it's but, it's yeah, it's interesting. Right. So very that very next page from that joke that you read, and that was you know that was ultra violence as a joke, right? The 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 passage you just read, Jeff. The very next page. Uh, Lynn Carter says, but it's one thing to gloat vicariously over descriptions of battles in books and something very different to be in one. Men in pain screamed like gilded horses. Guts spill in greasy white obscene tangles from slit bellies. Men in their death agonies befoul or wet themselves ludicrously and shamefully. Death and murder and the smell of blood and the brassy taste of fear are real and ugly. And it takes a kind of madness to enjoy them. Rosara did not enjoy them. Not in the slightest. And this is someone who has, therefore, you can't write that without having seen the consequences of real violence 
again, from the very little I could see from his biography, he was uh, in the army and he was in mm. Korea. I don't know if he saw frontline combat, but at the very least, he would have seen people coming back from frontline combat and, and see, you know, seen their reactions to that. So this is a weird extrusion of like a, I mean, that's real. That's not, that's not like, oh, that's what I think violence is, right? Yeah, it's such a weird element of some of this era's like sci-fi fantasy books is a lot of those people are veterans, like the mm-hmm. writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their experiences of war, like coloring or, or informing these narratives to a certain extent, like the violence in their book. And it's so weird how like on the one hand, it's like that he's like, here's some very real violence. And on the other hand, like our main characters are perpetrating this violence and they it's comical and cartoonish and there are no consequences at all for like their mass murder Mm -hmm. of these, like essentially like racist depictions of Brown savages. (laughs) Yeah. And literally like just anybody who's listening to this, who hasn't read the book, absolutely. um, They are described as savages. And then we talk about their chocolate Brown skin. So that's absolutely not Kira reading between the lines. That is Kira reading the lines. (laughs) Exactly. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Chocolate Brown skin, bushy beards teased into fat ringlets. There's like a whole page that like describe, it's just like the worst description. Right. These are their chocolate, their, their Brown throats, the hue of milk chocolate. Yeah. And like, yes, mm-hmm. they're constantly described as savages. Right. These are like, these are like violent Oompa Loompas, basically, you know, um, it's, yeah, it's, weird. it's weird. So, I mean, this is I mean, it's not it's not weird. It's it's understandable, but, you know, maybe terrible. So it's it's growing up in this mythology that is Western or American mythology of of redemptive violence or whatever, but then also seeing the reality of it. And I would imagine that maybe very soon we'll start seeing fantasy and science fiction from people who have been in this never-ending global war on terror that will also start reflecting a lot of this. I don't know how how quickly, you know, but... And the same way that we're starting to see in fantasy and science fiction, people kind of exploring... Um, being like transgender, for example, like because that's something that like this the lived experience of many people. But like now, people have the opportunity to kind of explore this stuff through like the lens of fantasy and science fiction. But Hoy, one of the things you said in the Patron Book Club, which I thought was really insightful, is that perhaps this is some kind of cognitive dissonance that Lynn Carter is experiencing, where he's like he's he's expressing this like playful, glorified violence, but he has also seen like how awful violence in real life is. So there's kind of this like him kind of like processing it and making sense of it, Mm -hmm. much like the way that like, you know, Hoy and I were saying, like we both recognize that Dungeons and Dragons is a big mess when you think about it from a colonial perspective. And it's like really kind of like amplifying and continuing on this like kind of colonial thinking, but we also totally love it. And it's like, how can we, make sense of loving this thing and continuing to love this thing while also recognizing the major problems that are like inherent within it. I, my solution has been to stop reading anything, any um, genre fiction by cis white men. <laughs> like I've been doing this for several years now. And so I, I finally read, you know, Octavia Butler's, um, uh, Parable of the Sour. Mm-hmm. Um, I read The Black Tides of Heaven, which is uh, an Asian non-binary story. And mur- I'm in the middle of Murderbot right now, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that kind of like, <laughs> like there's a lot more of that now. And in the past it existed too. It was just a matter of like reading between the lines. Right. Of yeah. Like, reading between the lines, finding it. Yeah. You, you know, we don't have that 
that limitless resource of the internet and chat groups and whatever, Twitter, to be able to have stuff pointed out to us that we didn't have before. Yeah. And even this is like a little under, this has some gay stuff in it, I'm, right. in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, totally. for sure. Now, Kira, there's one author from the Appendix N that I would love to recommend to you. Have you read anything by Margaret St. Clair? Oh no! Um, what has she done? So there's one book specifically that you, that I highly recommend, um, and it is called the The Shadow People. Oh, okay. And the Shadow People was written in the 19. It was written in the late 1960s, and at the time, Margaret St. Clair was a nudist and into polyamory and a Wiccan. Right, and living in Berkeley. And, and she was living in Berkeley. And she wrote this like um, this late 1960s story about these like basically these two hippies who go into the underworld and discover all these elves who are all on hallucinogens. But then when they come back up, like there's now like robots in the sky and stuff. Drones. Yeah, (laughs) it's insane. It is fucking insane and amazing. And I think you will love it. That sounds amazing. I love love uncovering historical queer things. Like I feel like I'm gaining back. uh, I don't know. Hit points. For right. like my heritage <laughs> or something, <laughs> right? And it's interesting because you mentioned about you know your your palate cleanser or antidote to this, but this project is specifically reading uh, by and large cis white men, right? Or oh, at least yeah. on the surface of it. Um, but Absolutely. finding these weird again, finding these weird extrusions, um, and so it it tells me that um, and whether it's conscious or not, right? But it tells me then that even the people who are supposedly the the upper dogs, you know, the top dogs, are still being constrained, are still suffering from the same constraints as everybody else, just in a different way, maybe. But, you know, they, they can't have a full range of expression that we would all have if we were just like, hey, let's, you know, you do you, you be, you know, I be me as long as nobody's getting hurt in the process, right? So. Absolutely. And um, Kira, have you read any Andre Norton? Oh, that sounds familiar. So Andre Norton, she's also on the Appendix N list. And one thing that's fascinating about her is, for one thing, she adopted a male a male name for her writing. Cool. But also, but also, like, when you read the first Witch World story, like, it's primarily, a, and it's just called Witch World, it's primarily about a woman who goes into the world as a man so that she can, like, um, so that she can, like, be the person she wants to be. So, like, it's fascinating <laughs> that we have an author who's using a male name who's writing about a woman who lives her life as a man. Right. Hmm. Wonder what's going on there. Right, right. Interesting not... stuff. Right. Yeah. And it's, like, hard in queer history. And she never married. She got. She never got married. Yeah. hmm yeah. She was a lady with her cats. Yeah. It's like um, Gentleman Jack. Right, sure. um, who's a historic butch lesbian? We just yep. um, discovered trans- was yeah. We just translated all of her letters like two years ago, and they made a, an HBO series about her, which is amazing. But like a lot of times, it's like, was this a was this a cis person cross dressing as a man to get along? Like, was it a butch lesbian? Were they trans? Were they a trans man? Right. And it's like we'll never know. Right. But you, yeah. you kind of have to read into it and and right. make your best guess and right. like maybe and, assume trans. Right. And and what does that mean? Even because what our terminology might not even have a meaning would not be recognized by that person in that society. Say, are you trans? Absolutely. What does that even mean? You know, right? <laughs> like, like, like yeah. in the turn of the century, Boston marriages right. were common, which right. was like a, a marriage between two women. Right. But mm-hmm. like, would that have been considered lesbians? Would we still do that today? Would Would they be straight? Like, mm-hmm. and it's just like 
completely different cultural signatures. Right, right. Just like I'm sure that in a hundred years, there will be terms for things that we all live and know and experience on some level, but would never even think to like categorize in any specific way. Yeah. Everyone's gay. That's, that's my theory. (laughs) 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 Or, you know, we'll find out all along that there was no such thing as gamers because we've all been living in a simulation. So (laughs) 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 we're in the matrix. Exactly. (laughs) So So Kira, Gary Gygax specifically lists this series as something you should read for inspiration for your advanced Dungeons and Dragons game. Um, (laughs) Based on that, like, why? Why do you think this is listed as inspiration for your AD&D game? Gosh, this is like a lot of gaming campaigns that I've read um, or experienced where you're like a group of rogues who are trying to stop an impending war. And obviously you can do it just among the five of you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like really cheesy. Like when you think about how like and it's very like Western and very American too, where it's yeah. like, um, like obviously these five individuals with their powers alone, like without any communities or, you know, ideologies to help them can like defeat this invading barbarian horde, quote unquote. Right. I don't know. It's just, it's very silly. Right, and right. they're each the most unique thing that's ever existed as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Here we've got the Tiger Man and the Immortal Wizard, and we've got our Gino Sphinx and our Construct Barbarian. (laughs) And the, yeah, the Immortal Wizard and like, uh, oh, who is the scientist? Like the Uh, lab scientist guy. Orbis Vetch. Yeah, Olaf Vetch. Olaf Vetch, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned ideologies, though, uh, Kira, because there is that two little allusions to that, which is the the tribe that's basically Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and then their prophet gets really tired. He says, "Let's just settle down here, right?" And then, and then their god said, "No, you weren't supposed to settle down." And you inflict them all these plagues, and they assassinate the prophet. And it's just like him, like poking fun at organized religion, I guess, which is another weird thing that pokes up through. It's like, is it, what's his thought about religion, right? And then there's that pacifist tribe in the jungle that trades with the bunny rabbits, and they're all vegetarians. <laughs> I kind of loved them, even though it was a little racist. Um, I thought that they they, that was something I would write into an adventure. (laughs) I especially like that when you first meet the king of that tribe, he's wearing like a necklace of skulls, but then it turns out they're all skulls of like large field mice who died of old old age. age. (laughs) (laughs) It is a delight, (laughs) and they they trade with sentient bunny rabbits or something, and like yeah, it's just yeah, that was very adventure time and very. Like and I feel like Kipu in the Age of the Wonder Beasts. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's like subverting your expectations about savages in the jungle, you know, right, like right. which was I, I felt pretty progressive right. for for this book. <laughs> <laughs> Big asterisk next to the word progressive. <laughs> you know, what I mean, we'll, we'll be caught in the same traps in in twenty thirty years time, right? So oh, that's, of course, that's, of that's course. The, the interesting thing is, like, I don't even know what he thought of himself as. In, in any stretch of the mind, maybe just like I'm just a storyteller. I just tell stories, right? But but yeah. it is interesting because that where you know where are the overlap and what things are that are left over, you know what are what are what are progressive moments and what are stuff that's left over from whatever our mythology that we're stuck in. Um, mm-hmm. I just like these little pocket societies. But you're right; it's the individual. It feels very D and D. It feels almost like this is a 
the after action on a, a an actual play. Like, oh, this happened and this happened because it's sort of very episodic. Oh, this is like, you know, 10 episodes of Critical Role or something like that, you know, or a little bit more weird than Critical Role, but that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, episode 13, this is when they had, and they sat around, they planned exactly like you would in a D&D session, like the players just talking the whole time. <laughs> right. And I was saying to Hoyt, one thing that's what's interesting about these books too is like, you know, we've, we've been reading them in order. And as we approach each one, um, like the cast of characters other than Ganelon, completely changes around. So it kind of reminds me of like Ganelon is the character that's being played by the pet player who's been there since session one, but like life has been getting in the way. So like that player had to go, uh, one player had to go away and we got another player in. And just like the way that like, like all these like random characters start working together again for like no real reason other than the fact that like that player has introduced them. Like that's, that's kind of what it feels like in this right, story as right, well. Right. Like I'm Jeff. I'll be being a tiger man today, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so while you were reading this, did you find that there was anything that you thought was like really kind of cool that you wanted to steal or use or any ideas you wanted to kind of take and work with? I, I, well, <laughs> I don't know. Like phrasing it that way. I'm not sure if there's anything I'd want to take as far as like, here's how I'd write an adventure. Uh Um, But I did write, I did like, um, like the inclusion of beasts and animals um, in this story, which I felt was very counter to how how we often see them included in fantasy um, or uh, sword and sorcery things. So like uh, he uses the word non-human a lot to describe like people other than human, which is very like inclusive and like not speciesist basically of animals. Like that's how um, like a lot of scientists and biologists now are transitioning into terminology like that. Like they'll say non-human people or they'll say individuals when talking about like a certain animal that they're looking at, like that cardinal right there is an individual. Um, so I thought that was really cool. And I liked that the Sphinx was a main character. Um, and like, she didn't have much agency, but it was, it was cool that like, she was like a playable character kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really loved the menagerie. So I'm vegan. I didn't like that it was a zoo. Um, but I'm, I'm very like particular about animal stuff. Um, but the part I did like is that I also have two snakes as pets and I love snakes. And this book is snake inclusive and snake positive. <laughs> <Right>. and like, <laughs> it's a six hundred foot po- a six hundred foot long snake, right? That's yeah, life. I loved the snake. Let me see if I can find it. As I, opposed like, to Conan, every time Conan sees a snake, it's like eight foot long and he kill has to the kill snake. It. <laughs> yeah, and it's or it's like the cult of the evil snakes, you know, or like it's a dragon we have to slay it. But this one was. Um, uh, Curtier uh, appeared in the enormous pale length of the Piast, Aurelibus, but she was still dozing for the last weeks of her bicentennial hibernation period, with her milky, pallid, partly translucent, snaky length, begemmed with tiny, glinting scales like flakes like of mica, the luminous, bejeweled tendrils which formed her skull crest, and her enormous, serene, gentle eyes. Like great lambent pink opals. He thought her the most beautiful creature he had ever seen. And so she was. The pink eyes half open were dim with dreams of a beautiful strangeness beyond conjecture. And how he wished she would awaken from her slumbers so he could love her as he loved the other weird and marvelous inhabitants of the menagerie. That was so adorable to me. (laughs) That was so good. 
And like, uh, yeah, I just really love that. And, you know, A Cozy Den, my game is about lesbian snakes. It's mm-hmm. like you you play fantastical um, serpent ladies, basically, um, who are trying to make their den as cozy as possible um, during the winter. And so it's supposed to subvert both your expectations about who lesbians are in games and who snakes are in games at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so that passage like really spoke to me. I really loved it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and again, it's again one of those unexpected extrusions of of like real beauty right i mean that's it's just it's not just like that it's conceptually cool it's actually really well written passage right it is yeah Yeah. and i love that he describes like the beauty he sees all the beauty of her and Mm. yeah and that the snake is a lady snake i don't know there's like a lot happening there which is really nice right right (laughs) so i mean i think uh lynn carter if nothing else even if his prose doesn't quite rise to it he is an s esthete is that the right word you know he he has a, a you know, an appreciation for beauty, even in its oddball forms, whatever it may be, right? Um, so whether it's, you know, boobs, giant boobs on a guy in a sphinx, or a 600-foot snake, or, you know, <laughs> an eight-foot-tall cyborg, <laughs> you know? Well, let's, yeah. say, yeah. let's say we wanted to take a story like this um, and do something like this in 2020. Kieran, do you think we can do a story like this in 2020 without it being problematic and a big mess? Absolutely. I would do that in two seconds. <laughs> and and what would you what would you want to do to 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 do a story like this in na- nowadays without without the same kind of problems this book brings with it? Uh, well, you'd have to subvert the power dynamics. So um, instead of them, you know, killing barbarian hordes, they would be like the underdogs fighting um, like an impressive invasive force. You know, maybe a little like Avatar The Last Airbender, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, all the sexy parts would just be overtly sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone would be sexualized, not just the ladies or feminine yeah. creatures. <laughs> not just the women and the little boys. <laughs> right. I mean, it's clear that Gurf and Ganelon are like the gay dads of right. Birdie. Right. So just like make them their gay dads. Right. And, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe probably less murder and more helping, right, you right. know, um, right. or if there is violence, it's to fight off and, in, and encourage and encouraging. Um, and even Palensis and, uh, Palensis and Vetch are like that, that like old first wave, first openly gay couple from like, you know, right. <laughs> right? And yes. Right. And they've gotten past the point where they're sort of sexually attracted to each other, but they're just so been together so long. That's just like the bickering old couple. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I feel like there's like, um, like what's the dragon, uh, cartoon? Harushk. Oh no, the dragon cartoon that's on Netflix right now. Um, it's got several seasons. There's gay dads in that. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like there's a precedence for gay dads in fantasy sci-fi right now. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Now, if you were going to do this, what system would you want to use? Well, there is one, uh, the ultraviolet grasslands is literally this, based on this. Um, so good. But I don't, I've never played it. I don't, I don't really play like Sword Dream OSR games. They're a little mm-hmm. too um, map gritty for me. Like that's not my sweet spot for role playing games. Like I don't like the like four hours of combat type games. I prefer the I'm playing a character and telling a story collaboratively games, yeah. which there's some drift in those. So right. I don't I don't know. Have you played Ultraviolet Grasslands? Before? I've read it, these. Does it like mimic this? 
I've read the setting briefly, um, and and there's a, a system that's lightly associated with it, but it's also meant to be used with sort of any fantasy system of your choice. Um, but it does have that sort of um, uh, what you call it? So a point crawl, right? This feels more like a point crawl than a hex crawl, right? You go to that point of interest. Here's a point of interest. Here's a point of interest. So they're going to all these funny lands, but they're skipping all the boring parts in between because they're always flying in their flying city or the on the hip on the Gynasphinx or whatever. Um, so I think that's pretty similar. So something that is, you know, let's get to the, let's get to it. Whether you're using a narrative system or you know an OSR type system, but Jeff, that's a great it. point. Yeah, yeah. and I, I and I had the Ultraviolet Grasslands. I think it is an incredible book. I think Luca Rayek is an incredibly talented artist and writer. Um, and one thing that I do love about the Ultraviolet Grasslands is it, you can use it to, um, regardless of what your t- style of play is. Like if you are somebody who wants to fight everything you run into, you can do that there. If you want to do the entire thing without ha- having to roll initiative once, you could also do that. Like not everything is presented just as like a sack of hit points, which I really appreciate. Like, you know, I have a weekly D&D game that I run and it's a very... we and, and like I use D and D, basically we just roll a D twenty to figure out what we're doing. Like there's no real rules. We're not using battle grids, and we have entire sessions where like there won't be any combat at all. And when there is combat, it's usually never more than like twenty minutes. So like my style is very much like fast and loose. Like let's 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 do let's 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 explore the story. And I've stolen a bunch of things from Ultraviolet Grasslands and thrown it into my games. A lot of the set pieces are in my world right now. Yeah, I think my favorite part about about the style of those games is the um, the role charts, the mm-hmm. the lists of just like inspiration um, yeah. and the psychedelic nonsense, like the psychedelic aesthetic. Right. Um, both of which are just fantastic. Right. <laughs> like I, even though it's not my style of gaming, I think there's right. like so much stuff you could pull out of that for right. inspiration. I do, and, yeah, I do think random charts are that sort of like that uh, eight ball oracle. They're really hard, great for sort of jump starting. Because when you think of ourselves, we tend to fall into patterns. And so if we're looking at something else and we're, we're juxtaposing three or four kind of incons- seemingly incompatible or inconsistent results, that's when we get these other interesting ideas that sort of pop up in between. Whereas we're like, oh, if I had to create this world, then it, it starts to, we start to start placing our preferences in there. And then after a while, we start realizing it's this world that I created is similar to that other world that I created. And we have to do something to consciously break that, break that process up a little bit, I think. Yeah, like in this last session of my game, um, the characters ended up uh, splitting, and like um, half of them kind of went off on this one adventure, but the other half, the other half, the characters didn't really want to do that, so they were looking for something else. And like, whatever, I didn't really have anything prepared, but I, I don't over prepare anyways. So I pulled out the Tome of Adventure Design, and I rolled up a random name for an adventure, and the name I ended, and you had to roll. Um, it's it's on four charts. And the, the name of the random adventure I ended up rolling up on these four charts was the Crimson Haven of the Unholy Tree. And it's like, boom, I have an adventure. So like just from those words, I like now knew what they were doing and where they could go an adventure. And I love stuff like that. Yeah. And specifically reading this, the thing that I don't want to write this because it seems like too much work, but I want somebody else <laughs> yeah. to make a D1000 table for me because I'm, I'm, I'm only asking for a thousand. <laughs> and I want a thousand different random villages that have strange laws and like strange customs that I can incorporate. That way, when you go to another village, it's not just some generic Dungeons and Dragons village. Like in this one, they they don't wear any clothes except um, except well placed opals. Like I think that was <laughs> something yeah. that was in one of these towns. Right. Or, <laughs> right. Or they all think that they're living in in splendor, but they're actually living in like you know 
and just utter filth and utter know, filth. Yes. Right. And, <laughs> I, one thing I might use to play this game is Apocalypse World. Um, I mean, yeah. it is it is seven hundred million years in the future apocalypse. Uh, basically, that is the setting, and it does have different factions at play. Which, like Apocalypse World, is very good at being like, here's your four factions around you and how they interact and all the moves that the NPCs there have and like their ideologies and what they want from you and what you need. All right. Um, and that could be like a more interesting engage- way of engaging like those um, those point encounters like you right. were talking about, like moving from place to place and discovering new things. Now, my understanding with Apocalypse World is a lot of times you, uh, in the lieu of classes, you have these playbooks, right? So each character yeah. or archetype has these unique sort of moves that they can sort of incorporate. So um, which of these characters in the books would you write a playbook for and what would their unique move be in? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that's, that's a hard choice between the cyborg and the gyno sphinx, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, also the tiger man is very me. I'm writing like nothing about games. I, my, my past two games are like, half person, half animal games, which is like really fun. I'm working on one that's where you're a half person, half monarch butterfly right now. Oh, wow. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I probably would do, I, I'm a little obsessed with beasts in games right now. So I probably would do the Gynosphinx sure. um, because I think that we need to think about how we include beasts in role-playing games more. Why are we randomly killing beasts all the time? Yeah. Um, instead of like interacting them with them in different ways, which actually a game just came out called, or it's being made, it was kickstarted, called the Monster Care Squad, oh, sure. where <laughs> you go around, you're basically like monster veterinarians and you go and like heal them and protect them from like the villages who are trying to kill them and it's amazing that's like my i love that right now i'm obsessed with that idea it's like looking at the other in the role-playing game and how to subvert it right and the beast is just the mythological beast is still the other like we're still slaying dragons for no yeah. reason right right um so i think i would do the gynosphinx uh the move would be i don't know crushing you with your giant paws <laughs> 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 not in a sexy way no um <laughs> well everything could be sexy but you know first she's crushing you then <laughs> yeah she, she is really intimidating she probably would have she's gigantic and yeah. every time people see her for the first time they're like my by jove what is that giant flying <laughs> lion so probably something that's like impressive you know, intimidating majesty. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Well, I feel like we are running out of time. Kira, was there any kind of last thing about the immortal of World's End you wanted to chat about that we didn't quite get a chance to get to? Gosh, no, I think we covered it all. <laughs> there was one oh, thing no. I wanted to say real quick, which oh, is yeah, uh, Trancor. There's the city There's the city of Trancor. I want Trancor to be a genre of music. <laughs> I want to listen to Trancor. You know what? Tra- you know what? Uh, who is a Trancor musician? Um, Dorian Electra. Do you know oh. Dorian Electra? I don't. Okay, go and listen to um, their entire album right now. They're non-binary, genderqueer, masculine kind of presenting. Amazing. Um, 
the old, this like the first album, not the second album you need to listen to. Um, they do like a breakdown of different gender roles in their music and it's like hardcore electronica. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and like the music videos are like if anime met like 90s Hot Topic, met like, <laughs> met, like David Bowie, like it is bananas and amazing. That sounds incredible. Yeah. There's a song called Guy Liner. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Which the Sim Tracks did have Guy Liner, right? They had the green Guy, guy Liner. They so, did, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they, to make their eyes look even the, more The crimson eyes. Yep, yeah. <laughs> now, it looks like you had, a last, you had a last thought there, too. Oh, yeah. Well, I, that reminded me of two. I did like the one Sim Track character that we finally got to meet at the end. Yeah, Wolf, was like Wolf a Turgo. Yeah. 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 That Wolf was Turgo cool. was cool. Right. Yeah. And there was some individuation once you actually did meet some like the other guys. There was like the yes man uh, in, you know, in the, the barbarian group and the surly magician. And so even then, you know, Lincard is like, okay, once I get close enough, I can start creating some individuality. Well, at the, at the 30,000 foot level, these are this, just this thing. But when I get in, I can do this thing. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was good. At least that to, to break down the, the masses versus the individuals to show, yeah. um, diversity within the group <laughs> yeah totally yeah. yeah yeah cool and kira do you have any projects that you're working on right now that our listeners should keep an eye out for yes i am working on a game called fly softly um where you play sim monarchs who are people who for a few generations have had monarch dna injected into them um, and live in these community these future communities um, whose goal is to kind of build a better world and heal the land um, through various means. Uh, it's kind of like a weird near future sci-fi biopunk game. Um, and there's like ghosts and mutants and like as monarchs, you you um, travel from West Virginia down to Michoacan in Mexico, like real monarch butterflies do. Um, so... <laughs> So I'm working on that right now. I want to kickstart it early next year. Um, and if you want to follow my design thoughts and projects behind the scenes, that's all on my Patreon as well. And what's great is, although we're recording this in 2020, this episode will drop in um, on January 11th, 2021. So that might be a great time for people to start looking for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I'm thinking February. It's not 100% sure, but cool. probably, probably February. All right. And, and 2021 is a good year to be looking at building a better new world. Right, exactly. And the it best is. way for people to find out what you're doing is on your Patreon? Um, that's where a lot of my design projects are. But if you want to find um, my already made things, um, I have games all over the place, but they are home-based on my website, um, which is Serpent Cyborg Games. Um, and I do a lot of Twittering. So if you follow my Twitter um, at Kira Nunzi on Twitter. Um, you can kind of see on my pinned tweet, you know, stuff that I'm doing and where to, where to find all my things and pictures of my cute snakes. And stuff. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> all right, Jeff, any other uh, bits of interview? What about our Patreon? Uh, yeah, so if you would like to show us some support, please head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club. Uh, we'd like to give a shout out to Adam Styers for joining us on our patron book club earlier today. And we'd also like to give a shout out to a handful of our patrons. So thank you to Andrew Seton, Vasily Kalaman, Matt Richards, Demo Saklas, Frank Maybe, Noah Green, Brandon Cruz, Eric Johnson, 
Adrian Romero, and Lucio Nothlish Pimentel. Thank you all for your support. We really appreciate it. And our next couple of episodes will be uh, episode 87 is going to be on Robert E. Howard's Conan the Usurper. And episode 88 is going to be on Fritz Leiber's The Big Time. And hoy, how can folks find out more about us? All right. If you uh, uh, would like to get in touch with us, please uh, send us an email at uh, appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, and we have a Facebook page as well. Just look for Appendix and Book Club. Uh, do let us know how we're doing. We really like to hear from you guys. Uh, also, if you get a chance and would like to, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. That sounds like a show. Kira, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, total honor. Thanks for having me. This was a delight uh, talking with you two and meeting you. You're great. <laughs> <laughs> likewise, likewise. Like Hopefully, work. we can roll some dice or flip some cards at some origins in the near future. That'd be great. <laughs> All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.